Good afternoon, brethren. It's a privilege to be here with you. It's nice to get back in Charlotte and feel like you've been missed. I walked into the auditorium this afternoon. I met Dr. Meredith in the lobby, and he said, please make sure to sign the guest book. <laughs> now, it's good to be back in Charlotte. <clears throat> Had a very profitable trip to the U.K. We certainly appreciated the hospitality of the Staffords who are sitting here. Uh, they volunteered to pick us up when our plane came in. Our plane came in at 7.30 in the morning over there. So they got up very early in the morning, picked us up. We were going to go see some things, but nothing was open that early in the morning. So we had to wait around for things to open up. <clears throat> uh, it was exciting to be back in the UK whenever I left over there. We, we might have had 70 or 80 people uh, attending church in uh, Ireland and the UK and uh, places like that. And I think now there's about 250 or 260, which is exciting to see uh, <clears throat> happen over there. We were able to spend uh, one Sabbath. We went there for the last part of Unleavened Bread. Spent uh, the first Sabbath with uh, two of the churches at Mr. Stafford Pastors in uh, London. Very warm congregations. We drove down to the southwest to the area of Taunton uh, for the last holy day. <clears throat> and there were about 50 or 60 people down there meeting in a tiny little village surrounded by farmland with thatched uh, roof uh, cottages. It was absolutely beautiful but they have to endure the last holy day there. They're very warm people, <clears throat> very pleasant. My wife and I spent uh, several days exploring some very interesting historical sites uh, uh, from the standpoint of church history as well as the history of Britain down in Cornwall. We went to a place called St. Michael's Mount. It's a little island just offshore down near Penzance. You've probably heard of the, the musical, The Pirates of Penzance. Well, it's way down on the tip of Cornwall. But apparently the Phoenicians uh, visited uh, St. Michael's Mount down there. Uh, they were there picking up tin from that part of the world. And on our way back, we stopped at Tintagel, which is... Uh, the ruins of the castle in a very rugged headland, a very spectacular setting where uh, legend says that King Arthur was born. So whether or not he was born there is beside the point, but it was an absolutely spectacular area just to see that part of the country. We had a two-day conference in Luton just north of London for the ministers and some leading individuals there in both Ireland and England. Very positive conference uh, the camaraderie was just very warm and very genuine. Certainly appreciated that very much. Had a chance to spend a couple of days with Mr. and Mrs. King at their office, see how things were run there, had some good talks. And then before coming back, we uh, visited Blenheim Palace, where Winston Churchill was born. And after walking around Blenheim Palace, this is huge, gorgeous, uh, imposing uh, uh, structure, that was given to uh, the first Duke of uh, Marlborough, which was Winston Churchill's uh, ancestor. He won, he beat the French. So the English Queen gave him this big uh, piece of land, uh, landscape very beautifully in a big uh, imposing house. But with Churchill being born there and then wandering through the halls from time to time, you can understand a little bit where he was coming from. You know, he made a statement one time. He says, you know, we're all worms. But he said, I think I'm a glowworm. 
But when you see how he grew up in those surroundings, you can begin to understand where he got these uh, perspectives. Uh, we watched a movie, The uh, Gathering Storm, in which uh, uh, it was depicted a portion of Churchill's life right before World War II. And he got into a little tussle with his personal aide. And he said to his aide, you know, you're giving me a bad time. His aide says, well, you're giving me a bad time. And Churchill said, well, I can because I'm a great man. <laughs> you know, he was a very powerful individual, kind of a bulldog type of person. Uh, had quite an impact on history, but he had some stormy relationships with people. Uh, apparently, another story, he was having dinner in New York with a, I believe it was uh, <clears throat> Lady Astor, you know, one of the socialites there. And she said, Winston, if I was your, if I was your wife, I'd put poison in your coffee. He said, if I was your husband, I would drink it. <laughs> like I said, he had some stormy relationships. Sometimes he was in power. Sometimes he was out of power. Sometimes he was popular. Other times he was not. Uh, he had his high periods and his low periods. But those stories relate to what I'd like to talk about this afternoon. <clears throat> I want to talk about one of the biggest challenges that you and I face as Christians. In fact, one of the biggest challenges that we face as human beings. And that challenge is very simple. Learning how to get along with other people. Learning how to get along with other people in a peaceful, harmonious, and a productive way. Learning how to work together as a family and as a team, I want to talk about teamwork this afternoon. We covered this, a little bit of this, in the conference that we had in England. Because it's one of the fundamental lessons of life, learning how to get along with people. You know, we teach our children, or we have to teach our children, we're supposed to teach our children that. And if they never learn, then they have a difficult time through life. But it's also an important part of God's plan when you think about it. If God created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden. He created them individually. And then he said, I want you to marry and learn to work together. They were created as individuals, but they were created to learn to work together. And the history of matrimony shows that that's not always been easy. It's been a challenge. Some have learned how and others have not learned how. Jesus called his disciples, when you think about it, he called them individually, James, John, and so on. Then he gave them a mission to go out and preach the gospel, but he said, you've got to go two by two. You've got to learn to work together to do that. And it was a challenge for them, as we will see. Some found out how to do it, and others didn't find out how to do it. But it's part of God's plan. It's within the marriage. It's within the church. What I want to talk about today is teamwork. Why is it important for us as Christians to learn to work together as a team? And we've got to put it in the big picture. How do individuals, because we've all been created as individuals. We have a slightly different genetic makeup. We have different personalities. We have different 
focuses. We have different strengths and weaknesses. But we've been called to become part of a body, as we will see, to work together. And it's a challenge. How do we become? How do individuals become a team? You know, I've watched a lot of basketball and played a lot of basketball, football games, as you have. Why do some teams come together? And why don't other teams come together? What's missing? Or what do they have? How do you build effective teams within the context of a family, within the context of the church, within the context of, say, a business? Some businesses function well and others don't. What are the qualities of good team players? What are the qualities that make a good team player as opposed to just being an individual? We can all be individuals because we are. But to become a team player is, is something different. What are some of the barriers that hinder teams working together? We'll talk a little bit about that towards the end of the sermon. But I've entitled the sermon, The Importance of Teamwork. The Importance of Teamwork. And if we can think about this in a family context, in a business context, within the church. And the theme that I want to run through the, the sermon is that we are called as individuals. We are called as individuals. But we are to become a family. We are to become a team. And this is our goal. So I want to talk about that in the sermon today, and I hope it will be practical. We discussed this in the conference over there in England, and there was some very positive feedback. Why is this important? Why is it important to talk about something like this? Again, in the context of the big picture, in Revelation 5.10, we're told that we're going to become, if we make it into the kingdom of God, we're going to become kings and priests to reign with Jesus Christ on this earth as part of a governmental team that he's going to put together. Your President Bush had a team of individuals that he used to govern the United States. President Obama came in with a new team of individuals. We have been called to become part of the team that Jesus Christ is assembling to work with when he comes back to this earth. Daniel chapter 7, verse 27 says, The saints, the kingdom is going to be given to the saints, and they're going to reign on this earth. This is our goal. This is our opportunity. Let's turn to uh, Isaiah chapter 9 and notice the mission of this team. Notice what the team is going to do that Jesus Christ is putting together. A prophecy about Jesus Christ, but also about his mission that we've been called to be part of. It says, For unto us, verse 6, a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government, a government is composed of individuals. The government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with justice and judgment from that time forward, even forever. Jesus Christ is going to come back to this earth and establish a government that's going to bring peace to this earth. Peace within families, peace within congregations, 
peace between individuals, peace between nations. But it's going to come as a result of a way of life. We're going to have the opportunity to teach these things if we learn the fundamentals and if we learn to apply those fundamentals. Let's look at another scripture in the New Testament where Jesus was trying to impart to his disciples the night before he was crucified. We went through this at the Passover, but let's look at it again. Notice what Jesus was, was focusing on. He was praying to God at the close of the Passover. But it's a teaching prayer. He was teaching in the context of a prayer. <clears throat> Notice in verse 11, it says, I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, O Holy Father. Keep through your own name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. He was praying. And we'll go into some background information as to why he was praying this with his own disciples the night before he was crucified. He says, God, I'm praying for them. Father, I'm praying for them that they can be one as we are one. Then down in verse 20, he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, through the words of the apostles, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that they can be on the same page as we are, be of the same mind as we are, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. We have been called to become at one with God, to become at one with Jesus Christ, to become at one with each other. Yeah, that's a challenge because God is calling us out of different backgrounds. We come with different perspectives. We have different ideas. But he's called us to learn to be one. It's not that easy. It's a challenge, but there are ways that point in that direction. Paul mentioned the same thing in Galatians chapter 3. There were Jew-Gentile problems in the early church, and some people were exploiting those differences. But Paul is writing in Galatians, following in the footsteps of the advice that Jesus Christ gave. Go to Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 28. Galatians 3, verses 26 through 28. He says, For you are all sons of God. He's talking to people that are both Jews and Gentiles. You're all sons of God, daughters of God, through the faith in Jesus Christ. We need to look to him as our example and our guide. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. In other words, you follow his teachings, follow his example. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We've been called to become at one with each other. The apostles were given a mission to go into all the world and preach the gospel about the coming kingdom of God, about the name of Jesus Christ, but they had to work together to complete that mission. They had to coordinate together. They had to learn to work together. But it was not that easy. And I think it's interesting how God puts examples in the Bible for us to learn from. You would think, well, they were with Christ for three and a half years. They must have really had a handle on everything. No, they didn't. They had to learn. 
They had to learn. Let's notice a couple of interesting scriptures. They were called as carnal, unconverted individuals. Some of them were ambitious. Peter ran his own fishing business. James and John apparently had their own business. Whether they competed for the fish, I don't know. (laughs) But they had to learn to work together, and it was a challenge for them. Let's start in Matthew chapter 18. I want to start there, and then we'll go someplace else just to add some perspective. Matthew 18, we use the scripture for the uh, blessing of the little children. And it's easy to read over what was actually happening here. We've got to go to some other scriptures to get the full context. But in Matthew 18, verse 1, it says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Sounds like an innocent question. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, Jesus comes back and says, Surely I say to you, unless you are converted, you've got to be converted first to be in the kingdom of God, and become as little children. The little children are very expressive, and they'll believe whatever you tell them. So you've got to be careful what you tell them. Is that true? You know, they're, they're very receptive to input. Sometimes they get the wrong input, and it gets them off in a wrong direction. But unless you're converted, unless you change and become like little children, you'll be no means enter in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives uh, one little child like this in my name receives me. But he's talking about humility. He's talking about teachability. But why is he talking that way? Let's go to Luke chapter 9, because there's another dimension here that Luke offers that uh, was not that evident in Matthew's account. Luke chapter 9, verse 1, begins with Christ calling his 12 disciples, and he gave them power and authority over demons and to cure diseases and sent them out to preach the kingdom of God. Now, in Mark Verses six, Mark chapter 6, verse 7, he says he sent them out two by two. So they had to work together on this mission. Now, if you get down to Luke chapter 9, beginning about verse 46, right before Jesus talks about blessing little children, it says, Then a dispute arose among them, among the disciples. They'd been sent out by Christ. Then a dispute arose among them as to which one of them would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So it wasn't just an innocent question. Well, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The question was, which one of us is going to be the greatest? So they were disputing about that. Now, what is even more sobering, if you go to Luke chapter 22, Luke 22, Now, we kept the Passover <clears throat> several weeks ago. It was a very solemn occasion, a very positive occasion. The disciples kept the Passover with Jesus Christ. But notice here in uh, <clears throat> verse 22, at the Passover, now there was also a dispute among them, among the disciples, the night of the Passover, as to which of them should be considered the greatest. Now, they had been called by Jesus Christ. He'd worked with them for almost, probably about three years. And yet they were still on this kick of who's going to be the greatest. 
Whose ideas will prevail? Who's going to dominate? And yet they had been sent out two by two to teach, you know, to learn a lesson. They hadn't learned to work together yet. They, they were still, you know, kind of dueling with each other. Another account. Now again, you have to ask yourself, why are these accounts here? Unless there's something for us to learn. Let's go to Acts chapter 13 first. Is noting noticing personalities. It was a little sobering if uh, Acts 2 is written. It may have some of our names in it, with little stories about us. <clears throat> but in Acts 13, notice they were, verse 1, it says, Now the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, uh, Simeon, uh, Lucius, Manion, and Saul. And they ministered to the Lord and fasted, and the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. So it was God that sent Paul and Barnabas out together. They were to work together as a team. They did for a while. Acts chapter 15, there were some issues arose over circumcision, questions arose over circumcision. Verse 2 of Acts 15 says, Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute among them, they determined to, uh, that Paul and Barnabas, Saul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, and certain others would go up to Jerusalem. So they went up together to try and settle this issue. A decision was made. Uh, the church made that decision. But notice then in verse 36, now Paul and Barnabas who had worked together, then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached and the word of the Lord, where we preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Now, Barnabas was, now notice the terminology here. Barnabas was determined to take John, called Mark, with them. Well, Paul, yeah, that's a good idea. I think we ought to take John Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take him. So here you got Paul wanting to do one thing and Barnabas wanting to do another thing. They were supposed to be on the same team. But they were knocking heads. Verse 39, the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. So Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus and Paul chose Silas and departed, uh, being commended uh, by the grace of God. But here were two of the apostles that found it difficult to work together. And you have to ask the question, why couldn't they work together? It appears they both had very strong personalities. They both had very strong ideas. Uh, Paul insisted and, and Barnabas was determined. They, they were going to do their own thing. Didn't work out very well, but the implications are that they, they were able to work that out later because Paul says, you will send me Mark and have him bring the the parchments and so on. So they were able to get over that. One other account, I, just, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but the Bible gives a number of different accounts. Uh, in uh, Third John, Third John, John is mentioning here, <clears throat> uh, 
Begin in verse 4. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. In other words, people that he'd call, or not that he'd call, but God had called, but had learned to work together, to work together in harmony, that they're walking in the truth, they're on the same page. He says, that really makes me joyful. John is writing as an older man, probably 80 to 90 years of age. But then he writes in verse 9, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. Here was a guy that was not a team player. He basically wanted to run things his own way, and he was saying negative things about Paul and possibly others. Uh, He does not receive the brethren, forbids those uh, who wish to putting them out of the church. He says, Beloved, don't imitate what is evil. Don't, don't do this. Don't follow this example. So we have some examples in the Bible where people that were called into the church had difficulty getting along with each other. Uh, you know, I think we've all seen and experienced situations where you know, some people, uh, they'll come in the door and they'll sit over here, and other people come in and they'll sit over there, and they watch to make sure the other person isn't going out the door at the same time they are. And, uh, that is not Christian conduct. You know, these are things we have to grow out of, overcome. Getting along with each other is, is a challenge, but with God's spirit and with the instructions that we find in the scriptures. You know, God wants us to learn lessons. That's probably why we have challenges that we have to deal with. Let's look at some of the instructions that we find in the Bible for becoming a team, learning to work together. I think we all know what teams are. You know, I've watched uh, football teams, baseball teams, you have. It's interesting when you, when you follow a team for a period of time. Some teams win. Some teams come together. They play well together as a team. And other teams may have outstanding players. But in some cases, they don't play well together. We happen to live in Boston whenever Larry Bird and Robert Parrish and some of these guys were playing uh, basketball. The Celtics won, I don't know, seven or eight championships. And uh, what was interesting, I don't think any of their players ever led the league in scoring. We had one guy that was their point guard, led the leagues in assists. He assisted other people. He passed the ball off to other people. And they won a lot of games because they worked together. They learned to think together. Larry Bird, I used to watch. He was amazing on the court. He would get the ball and just flip it over his shoulder because he knew somebody was going to be there. The guys had played together enough that they thought together. You know, one of their biggest rivals was the Los Angeles Lakers. And the Lakers had some outstanding fellows on their team that didn't like each other. <laughs> and they blew one of their tournament series. They got blown out of the saddle by the Detroit Pistons, who weren't even supposed to win, because the Detroit team was playing together as a team, whereas the Lakers came in all confident that they weren't playing together as a team. It's, it's vitally important. But let's look at some scriptures. 
Some of the scriptures and some of the instructions that Jesus wanted to give, actually gave to his disciples before they were still arguing at the Passover. But there are keys here. Dr. Meredith has talked about this over the years. We've emphasized it in numerous ways, I think, in our uh, leadership class and advanced leadership training program. But in Matthew chapter 20, James and John's mother, even the families picked up on this. The mother came and said, you know, I've got these two wonderful boys, Jesus. And you could just give me a little favor that one could sit on your right hand and one could sit on your left. They're wonderful boys. But that didn't promote harmony on the team. It really upset the other members of the team. But Jesus' response to that, you pick up in verse 25. It says, but Jesus called himself, called them to himself. He said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And it's not only Gentiles that like to rule over people. It's Israelites and almost everybody else that gets in a position of power. Uh, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. This is what Jesus is looking for and his team members. Whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be a slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and gave his life as a ransom for many. One of the books I was going through preparing the sermon talked about that uh, a truly humble person will look for ways to serve. They will not look for ways to shine. They will look for ways to serve. They will not look for ways to shine. Ah, here's my opportunity. It's a different way of thinking. I happened to teach at a state college up in Massachusetts, and this was the motto of the college, not to be served, but to serve. And I thought it was unfortunate. I was there for three years. The president of the college never mentioned the motto. It was a shame because it was a biblical motto. It was a very powerful motto. But Jesus' instruction was we need to look for ways to serve, not to shine, but the ways to serve. Another key is in the attitude of Jesus Christ. And this can apply in a marriage, it can apply in a family, it can apply in a business, it can apply in a church. Matthew 26, verse 29, when Christ was praying to his Father the night before he was crucified, we see this attitude. Matthew 26, verse 29. And that is the wrong scripture. Let's try verse 39. It says, Oh, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. He knew it was going to get very difficult. He understood what was coming. He may have watched crucifixions as a child. And he realized, I'm going to have to go through that. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He put his mission above his personal agenda in that sense. He put the mission of the team ahead of his own personal, uh, maybe physical desires. But it's a key for getting along. It's a key for working together as a team. A number of the coaches that uh, write about teamwork 
have mentioned that uh, team players put the good of the team ahead of the individual. And this is what happened to the Los Angeles Lakers. They put their individual agendas first as opposed to the, the goal of the team. But that's a very powerful principle. Let's notice some other principles now that um, the Apostle Paul gave us. Now keep in mind, Paul and Barnabas knocked heads. They found it difficult to work together. And yet Paul is writing and giving us principles of how to do it. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. Paul says, now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. Now, he was not trying to create yellow pencils where everybody just thought exactly the same, did the same things, and and just followed lockstep uh, with everybody else. He says, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. There be no divisions, no factions, no schisms, no contentions among you but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. You know, when we have our Council of Elders meeting, we talk about a number of things, and not everybody agrees all the time, but we try to come to a a consensus. And if we can't, then we put it on the table, and we wait till the next meeting and talk about it again. But the idea is let's let's work together as opposed to championing our, our, our own ideas. You know, we don't, before our council meetings, we don't have a little group out in the hallway over here and another little group out in the hallway over there. We're going to get together. We're going to get this thing done and so on. We don't function that way. We ask for God's guidance. We ask for God's blessing so that we can work together to try and be of the same mind and the same judgment. Sometimes that takes some time. You know, as husbands and wives, if we work towards working together, as opposed to, well, I've got my opinion, you've got your opinion. (laughs) That doesn't work. But if we can make this our goal, there'd be no divisions. There are things that will help us move in that direction. Now, there are probably some people who said, yeah, Paul, you couldn't get along with Barnabas, and you're telling us. (laughs) No, Paul apparently learned some lessons. That's why he's conveying these things so that we be of one mind. In Proverbs 13.10, maybe just jot it in your notes, why are there contentions? What's the cause of contention? Proverbs says it's pride. I've got my opinion. You've got your opinion. And we've got to be able to work together and work through that. So our goal should be to strive to work together, to, to be on the same page. 1 Corinthians 12. It's interesting, a number of these principles come from Corinthians where Paul was probably writing it about the time of the Days of Unleavened Bread. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul uses this analogy. He uses it here, uses it other places. talks about the body, the church, verse 12. For as the body is one and has many members, but not all the members of that body being many, excuse me, but all the members of that body being many are one body, so also is Christ. You look at your physical body. You've got hands and feet and ears and nose and various parts on your body. But they're all part of the body. They all have important functions to play in the body. But we're all one. 
But down in verse uh, 20, this is where we're going to pick up here. Start in verse 24. But our presentable parts have no need. Uh, But God composed the body. God put the body together, having given greater honor to that part which it lacks, that there should be no schism, no factions in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. You know, if you woke up in the morning and you started to breathe, but your lungs wouldn't work. And the lungs would say, I'm not breathing today. I'm tired. I'm not going to (laughs) breathe. You go to get out of bed and your feet won't move. Come on, feet, move. No, we're on strike today. You worked us too hard yesterday. We're not getting out of bed today. Body can't function. But Paul uses this analogy. In verse 27, he says, Now you, he's drawing this back to the church, now you are the body of Christ and members individually. So we're individual members of a body. And God has appointed these in the church. And he gives uh, 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 roles here in the church. Apostles, prophets, teachers, uh, miracles, works, gifts of healing, and so on. But he's saying, you know, the, the body has different parts, and they all have different roles to play. Verse 18, let's go back up there. It says, now God has set the members, each one of them in the body, as it pleased him. Now, this is something to think about if we have an issue with another person in the church. To realize God put them on the team. God put them on the team. We may not have chosen them, but God did. And part of our challenge and our opportunity is to learn to work with these other parts of the body. Uh, and I think that's a powerful concept that God put us in the church. And that he wants us to learn to work with the other parts of the body. Let's go to uh, Romans chapter 12, and then we'll come back to Corinthians. Romans chapter 12. Paul in Romans 12 is talking about the essence of Christianity. These are the fundamental things that Christians need to focus on and learn to be able to do. Notice the emphasis on learning, because we're not perfect. We've been called to become perfect. It says, let love be without hypocrisy. Don't don't feign it. You don't pretend something that you're not. Abhor evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. I've used this example before of a young person who came into the church and said, you know, I love the truth. I just love the truth. It's the people I can't stand. Well, they didn't have the big picture. They didn't have the big picture. Part of uh, our calling is to learn to work and be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love, Philadelphia love, where you, you enjoy each other. In honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, be fervent uh, in the spirit and so on. Uh, distributing the need of the saints, given to hospitality, bless those who persecute you. Now, that's hard. Somebody pokes you in the eye, you, it's hard to say, well, bless you. <laughs> and then turn the other cheek so they can poke you again. Yeah, that's hard. That's hard. He says, be of the same mind one towards another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. 
Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. But notice verse 18, a key for working together. It says, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. As much as depends on you, I think is the key. It's always easier to say, you know, I just can't get along with that person because they do this and they do that and they do something else. But Paul is saying, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. In other words, we need to turn around and look at ourselves. What am I doing that might uh, create problems here with uh, this situation? You know, how could I change? We can't change somebody else. Our responsibility is to look internally at ourselves. Now, this is what we talked about at the Passover, 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. And this is something I think even big-name sports figures don't enjoy doing because it involves self-analysis and maybe change. But this was the instructions that Paul left the night of the Passover or for keeping the Passover. Beginning in verse 27, it says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, not realizing what Jesus Christ went through to pay the penalties of our sins, will be guilty of the blood and the body, body and blood of Jesus Christ. But let a man, let a person examine himself. We need to look at ourselves. What can we change? How can we grow? How can we adjust? So let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he, again, he says this twice. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body, that Christ died for our sins. So that we could have a chance to grow and change. For this reason, many sleep and are sick among you. Verse 31, but if we would judge ourselves, analyze ourselves, look at ourselves, and it's something we have to do from time to time. Just stand off from ourselves and listen to ourselves talk. Maybe watch how we treat each other. Uh, what do other people see as they look at us? And if you can do that for yourself. You know, little kids at school, if they have obnoxious behavior, they do all kinds of things, they're avoided. And if they never learn those things, then they'll be shunned. And we want to bring out to our children that that's not the way to treat people. We flew back yesterday in a plane, about nine hours. And uh, my wife wanted a seat where we could stretch out, so she was able to get some exit row seats, so we had plenty of room. But they also give those seats to families with little children. <laughs> And sure enough, we were sitting right beside a fellow that had a little boy, and he was all boy. But, you know, he was a good kid, that the father was attentive to him, kind of wrestled with him, and he had a hold of either his arm or his pants or something <laughs> to keep him from going all over the place. But he, he was just doing what boys do. He'd climb all over everything, and he wanted to look behind everything and look under the seats and climb over the seats. And, but the father kept a handle on it. 
And it was really kind of pleasant watching him and watching the father struggle. Uh, I've been through that stage. But it was just interesting watching him. But he was a pretty good kid. And for nine hours, he didn't cry that much. Uh, But the father had to be attentive to him. Now, what does that have to do with what we're talking about here? I'm not sure. (laughs) But it was interesting to watch. Okay, back here at the Passover, uh, talking about judging ourselves, analyzing ourselves. If we would do that, then hopefully we'll be able to make some adjustments that will make it easier to get along with others. But these are powerful principles that Paul is talking about, and they become very practical. If we look for rough edges that we might have, I probably have mine, and sometimes people point them out to me. And uh, our tendency is, uh, you're getting personal here, but we should be able to thank people. Thank you for showing me that. I didn't realize that about myself. But that's what Paul's talking about. If we can evaluate ourselves, uh, as he was talking about in Romans, as much as lies within you, what can you do? 1 Corinthians 13 One of the things that Paul is emphasizing, and we can kind of analyze ourselves this way. Let's begin in verse 4. Talking about the importance of love, and this is an unselfish, outgoing concern for others. And this is not natural. It might be for a mother for a child or for a father for a child, but he's talking about this, this godly love. Love suffers long and is kind. I was looking up another translation. It says love suffers very long. <laughs> and love is very kind. Love is very patient. It doesn't jump to big conclusions quickly. It is very kind in the way they treat people, the way they talk to people. Love does not envy. They were able to ordain a person <clears throat> not too long ago. And there were a number of individuals in that congregation that could have been and probably will be ordained. But one of the persons who could have been ordained was asked to give the closing prayer. And it was very moving. He said, God, please bless this ordination. Bless this ordination so this person can grow and serve even more effectively. That was very moving to see. It was an unselfish attitude. Love doesn't envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not always promoting its own uh, agenda. It's not puffed up. Paul is writing probably during the days of unleavened bread. Love does not behave itself rudely. Doesn't blurt out things and say things and uh, and worry about, well, that's their problem if if they're offended by it. Love is not provoked or not easily provoked. It's not like a Roman candle. It's just... It's constantly going off. doesn't do those things. doesn't think evil. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. You know, one of the articles in the paper this morning was by some theologians. Is it appropriate to rejoice at the death of bin Laden? You know, he caused the death of a lot of other people. But he was misguided, influenced by the wrong sources. Somebody may have the opportunity to work with him in the second resurrection. We'll have to wait and see. But love doesn't rejoice. 
in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. In other words, it overlooks faults. It, it overlooks them. It forgives. It hopes all things. It hopes for the best. It endures all things, and it never fails. And sometimes we feel like we've had it, and we say it that way. I'm out of here. I quit. I can't do it anymore. But that's not good for marriage. It's not good for a team. We had that happen here in Charlotte a couple months ago. Some fellow wasn't getting the playing time that he wanted on a basketball team, and he quit. And he left the team in the lurch because his personal agenda was more important than the team's agenda. Finally, in Matthew 23, now these are principles that we find in the scriptures that have tremendous applications when it comes to working together as a team. And if we can keep the big picture in mind, that we've been called to become part of the team that Jesus Christ is going to use when he comes back to this earth to reorient mankind, to re-educate human beings, to bring peace to this earth. Matthew 23, verse 37 reveals an aspect of Jesus Christ, his compassion for people. He cared for people. It says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, Jesus Christ sent them. He said, you stoned the individuals I sent to warn you, to encourage you, to help you. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Just wanted to protect you. Said you would have nothing of it. You didn't want it. Now Jesus is talking about the people in Jerusalem that would kill him. And yet he had that kind of compassion. He cared for people. He was a caring individual. If we can express and develop that kind of compassion and care for people, Mr. Stafford was talking about the, the joy of working with people that are excited about the truth. And people respond whenever someone cares for them. If they sense that nobody cares for them, they'll probably leave and go someplace else or get very discouraged. I wanted to go over just a little bit this afternoon. I've got a couple of books up here. One is entitled The 17 Essential Qualities of a Team Player. Again, we're called as individuals, but we've been called to become team players. And people that study teams recognize the qualities that team players have that individuals sometimes don't. <clears throat> Let me just run through some of these quickly, and I'll give you some scriptures because they're, they're biblical principles. They agree with biblical principles. Team players communicate with each other. The Boston Celtics that we watched were able to, I don't know how they did it, mental telepathy. <laughs> but they, they knew where the other guys were going to be on the court because they had played together. They, they communicated. Maybe it was a look just out of their eye. Just, but it, it had to be so unnoticeable that the defense players wouldn't have noticed. So he couldn't have said, I'm going to throw it to you in a minute. Get back there. That wouldn't work. Whenever you play basketball, they tell you, don't telegraph your plant. plant. Yeah. Don't telegraph your passes. Don't look where you're going to pass it and then 
pass it over there. You catch somebody out of the corner of your eye, and then you pass it looking the other way. So the defense doesn't pick up on that. But team players communicate. Jesus walked and talked with his disciples for about three years. He found teachable moments. And you can do this with your children. Certain things come up. You can teach them at that point in time. They communicate. Paul talks about uh, communicating. He wrote letters. We've got 14 of them in the New Testament. He was communicating with the congregations. Our body communicates with the different parts of the body. Let somebody tramp on your toe. And immediately your brain says, somebody tramped on your toe, and that hurts. Almost instantaneous like that. And it's immediate. And it's, it's constant. So communication is extremely important to be a team player. If you're not a team player, you don't have to talk to anybody. <laughs> you do whatever you want to do. But then nobody else knows what you're doing. Communication is important on teams. Number two, team members, effective team members, respect the other members of the team. They respect the other members of the team. They don't say negative things about them. I don't like that guy in my team. He can't dribble. He can't shoot. He can't do this. He can't do that. I don't like her making coffee because she burns it. Puts too much water in it. Whatever it is, if we recognize communicating negative things about another team player, and I think if we realize God put us on the team, if we start criticizing another member of the team, we're criticizing the person that put them on the team. Showing respect to other members of the team. You know, Philemon, whenever Paul wrote to Philemon, Paul was used to a number, he he was aware of a number of different leadership styles. Whenever the boat was sinking that was on its way to Rome, he said, look, you guys need to listen to me and throw some stuff overboard. You don't listen, you're going to die. That was assertive leadership. When Philemon's slave ran away, Philemon apparently had a church in his home. He was a man of means. Paul could have written him a letter and said, I'm an apostle. Take your slave back. I'm going to kick you out of the church. He could have written that way. But he wrote to Philemon. He said, I entreat you. (laughs) I'm pleading with you. Take this man back. He has been of great service to me. And if he's stolen from you, I will make it up. He wasn't ordering him to do anything. He was asking. He was entreating. Paul used a different approach. He was showing the man respect. The third one, team players, good team players, they work at building relationships. They work at building relationships with the other members of the team. They're reaching out. It's interesting. Some of the, I remember a kid that was in a biology class I was in in college. And I was in a pre-med program. There was a lot of competition. And this kid always got good grades. And I concluded I didn't like him. Because he was always getting good grades. 
But I figured, I, I don't like a kid. And one day he said, hi, Doug. And my whole opinion changed. <laughs> he was reaching out just to be friendly. He hadn't done anything to me except he studied harder than I did. <laughs> but I worked this thing up in my mind. I didn't like him because, because he was getting better grades than I was. He was working harder than I was. But whenever he said hi and was friendly, I thought, hey, he's a pretty nice kid. <laughs> But he was reaching out. It was something I didn't do. But team players work at building relationships. Uh, <clears throat> I think what we find is the more we share with each other, the more we begin to respect each other and actually begin to like each other. A fourth factor, a fourth quality, is that team players show appreciation. Jesus in his prayer, John 17, said, Father, I thank you for those you have given me. Paul in his letters, see, I, I, I keep you in mind in my prayers and thank God for you all every day. You know, how often do we thank God for the people in our lives that we're close to, the people that we work with? These are things that we can do if we, and build if we want to be effective team players. Cooperation. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Effective team players, they learn how to cooperate. You know, if we never learn how to cooperate with people, we're not going to make good team players. Ephesians chapter 4. <clears throat> and Paul is talking about the importance of unity. He uses this analogy again about the body. Uh, verse 15, he says, But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Jesus Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And Paul talks about the importance of unity, verse 4. He's talking about, uh, actually, verse 1. He says, I beseech you. Again, he's pleading with the Ephesians to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called, with all lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, one Lord, one faith, and so on. And then he talks about... Uh, Roles within the church. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> it says Christ gave, uh, he himself gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints and the work of the ministry and the edifying of the body till we all come into the unity of the faith. Now, Paul is giving guidelines here for conducting congregations, that there are roles and responsibilities that we have. If you turn over quickly to Ephesians chapter 5, then he starts giving guidelines for uh, an ideal Christian marriage. It says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. In other words, adapt yourself uh, to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, that's hard whenever you realize, but he's not perfect. See, that tests your conversion. <laughs> And then he tells the husbands to love your wives. He said, yeah, but she's not perfect either. 
know, God understands these things, but he wants us to learn to work together. Husband is head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church. Down in verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Uh, Then he summarizes that. uh, Verse 33, nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You know, these are not natural things for us to do, but if we're to work together, then these are the things we need to do. And notice the flavor of the home. Verse 1 of chapter 6, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may go be well with you and live a long life on this earth. And fathers, don't provoke your children. Now, the atmosphere that you create in the home is extremely important. You create the wrong atmosphere, people are going to want to bail out. If you create a positive atmosphere, they're going to want to stay. You know, one of the little quizzes I gave to our boys whenever they were growing up, I was taking some courses in behavior, human behavior. And I gave them a quiz after dinner one night. I said, give me, I gave them each a pencil and a paper, and I said, go in the other room and write down five reasons why you like being a winale. Notice I didn't give them carte blanche. <laughs> I said, give me five reasons why you like being a winale. And they each came back five, ten minutes later. And what I remember is they each came up with the reason it's fun. It's fun. And we tried to make it fun for them. You know, I'd watch parents working with some of their kids in church and sit down, shut up, don't move, and enjoy the Sabbath. (laughs) You tell that to a baby boy or a little boy. That's like prison. But, you know, we took them to, we were living in Pasadena at the time. We took them down to the Arboretum. We took them for a long walk for about an hour. Let them feed the peacocks and walk all over the place. And then we took them to church, tried to keep them awake until we got to church. <laughs> and then they would sleep for about an hour. But it was enjoyable. It was something they looked forward to. See, we, we can have, as leaders and teachers, kings and priests, we can set a tone. And if we set a difficult tone, then people will bail out. If we set a positive tone, it's going to attract people. A couple of other points here quickly, because we're running out of time. Be easily entreated. James talks about this in James 3, verses 13 through 18. It talks about the gifts of the Spirit. Are you approachable? If you're approachable as a person, you can begin to build relationships. We had one question asked in uh, England over there by a person. It's kind of tongue-in-cheek. He said, will I get in trouble if I ask this question? I said, no, you're not going to get in trouble if you ask the question. Go ahead and ask it, and then we'll talk about it. But we need to be easily entreatable as opposed to bristling or whatever might happen. Another quality is versatility. Are you versatile? Team players are versatile. Somebody was describing, uh, I think it was Magic Johnson, a basketball player. He was the only person to win a number of championships playing a different position on the basketball team. Some games he started as a center. Some games he started as a forward. Some games he started as a guard. 
He was willing to play the position that he was given for the good of the team. Are we able to adapt to circumstances or to personalities or whatever? Philippians 4.11, jot it down in your notes. Paul mentions, I've learned how to abound and I've learned how to be abased. You know, Dr. Meredith has told stories of what he had been through over the years. Many of us have been through different situations like that. How do we react when we're in this situation or that situation? Can we keep the big picture in mind? Stay focused on the big picture. Versatility is important. Are we submissive to authority? 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 5. Do we recognize where God is working? Do we recognize the instructions for roles in a family, roles in the church that Jesus Christ inspired? And are we comfortable with that? Another factor is being forgiving. Can we overlook something that has happened? Now, we, don't, we, we can't be naive. You know, people create track records, and sometimes we need to be aware of those things. But being able to forgive and not hold something over someone. These are all qualities of good team players. Let me just mention here as we begin to close some barriers to teamwork. <clears throat> Things that break down teams. If we spread rumors or criticize or accuse other members of the team, it's, it's not going to work together well as a team. Keeping in mind that God has called us to be on the team. And we need to learn to work with the ones that God has called. Refusing to communicate. I'm not going to talk to that person. I'm just not going to return their phone calls. I'm not going to return their emails. I'm just going to talk to them. Teams can't function if they don't talk to each other. And this is one of the fallacies today of, of uh, modern Christianity. The focus is on individual salvation. It's just kind of you and God. That's all that's needed. No, God has called us to be part of a family. To, to rejoice together, learn to work together. So refusing to communicate breaks down teamwork. Refusing to cooperate, number three. Well, they left the church, and I don't want to have anything to do with them. Even if they come back, I'm not going to talk to them. <laughs> Can't work that way. It doesn't work together as a team. Well, they came later than I did, so they're not as righteous as I am. Not a real Christian attitude. <clears throat> uh, you know, you're playing basketball. One person wants to hog the ball all the time. You don't want to play with them because... They never give it to you to shoot. They want to do it all themselves. Refusing to cooperate is not a Christian thing. You know, what if you're in the kingdom of God, you're given a, maybe Charlotte to be your area of responsibility, somebody else is given uh, New York City. Jesus said, would you call New York City and, and work out this problem? We're not talking this week. <laughs> not going to fly. It's not going to fly. Offending by our words or behavior. Sometimes we say things and do things that we don't realize offend other people. And this is where looking at ourselves is going to become important. I can remember giving a sermon one time. A person came up and said, were you mad at me? I said, why do you think? Because you looked at me and you had this very stern expression on your face. I said, I didn't notice you. <laughs> 
but sometimes we can offend without even realizing it. Competing with other members of, on the team. Uh, you know, we're called to be part of a team where we work together, not compete with each other. I'm out of time, but I, I would encourage you. Another book that I came across was entitled this very powerful title, Teamwork 101. It's the basics of working together as a team. Some of the quotes in here are really outstanding. One of the, the quotes was basically that working together as a team towards a common goal is one of the most rewarding experiences of life. Working together as a team towards a common goal is one of the most rewarding experiences of life. There is more to life than just doing your own thing. Working together as a team is even more important and gives you a greater high. Brethren, let's conclude. <clears throat> we have been called as individuals, but not to remain an island. I remember in high school we used to sing a song, No Man is an Island. No Man Walks Alone. We've been called to work together, to learn to work together as families, uh, in the church, on our jobs, but the training ground is for the kingdom of God. For the kingdom of God. It's one of the fundamental lessons of life. Jesus Christ outlined a goal that we are to become one as he and the Father are one. As we learn to work together, this should be our goal, to guide us in that direction. The apostles reiterated this goal. You know, we went over Paul's instructions. Peter mentioned some of the same things. In 2 Peter 3.18, Peter says that we were to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Brethren, let's set a goal for ourselves to grow, to become better team players with a desire to work together in harmony so that we can be used as instruments in God's hands to reach this world with a very powerful message that eventually is going to change this world and bring peace to this earth as we teach other people how to work together as a team.